0: Welcome into the, the Clap
1: Trap, brought to you by Ultrasound Productions, now also playing on 90.7 WKKL.
0: Underway with the first ever NBA Finals in the city of San Francisco. Experience, finals experience, and Green with a quick outlet to Curry, Play. What a great story. They leave Curry all alone, and that's lethal. Deadly. Which allowed them to hang around just enough until they found rhythm offense. Brown on the baseline, Horford inside, counted and won. This Boston team, Mark, shooting 21 of 41 from three-point territory. That is incredibly insane and inordinate.
1: Insane. That's what we're talking about for that comeback for the Celtics last night. Incredibly insane. Welcome into the claptrap. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm sure any green teamer is as well as the Celtics. If you stayed up for it, which I know a couple people who didn't actually, and it was, I understand it. It's a little late at that point, but we got to grind it out for this finals opportunity for the Celtics squad. And they were able to take advantage of the end of it. Obviously, the beginning, or I I should say, mainly the third quarter was the major problem and probably what turned a lot of people off of the game, literally and figuratively, but this Celtics team was able to make a huge comeback and and just absolutely destroy them in the fourth quarter, and we're going to get into that. We're going to break down the entire game. I'm going to talk about how I feel going into the remainder of the series, especially game two, and what I think is going to happen. We'll probably also get into some Bruins topics and Red Sox topics in this episode as well, but the first half, or the large majority of the show today, is going to be about the Celtics, uh, deservedly so as they were able to beat the Golden State Warriors 120 to 108 last night in Golden State, after being down 12, you know, 14 points, something like that to end the third quarter basically and then coming charging back, going on a crazy run, and just able to take care of business at the end of the game. Amazing. Not really uh, what I was expecting at that point. Uh, you know, you never say die when you're in a basketball game, especially late in the game. You know the game is a—it's—it's it's all about runs, and, and teams can come back very easily. So we'll talk more about that, but I kind of wanted to start off just with the beginning, and as you heard in that clip, to lead off the show, it was how it started versus how it ended. And how it started was great for the Golden State Warriors. I don't think that you could have had a better start with Curry coming out and I believe going six of seven from three-point range in the first quarter. That, I mean, insane. He hit seven of uh, I mean, six of his seven total three-point shots all in that first quarter. He was lights out. He, he could not miss. And it was a problem for this Celtic squad. But the real problem only was the fact that you couldn't really get anything out of Tatum to start the game, or at all for the entire game, for that matter. But, the, you know, they were they were able to kind of stick with this team. I was surprised to say it. After the first quarter, when you come out of there with a barrage of threes from Steph Curry and you have Wiggins playing good, you have Thompson hitting shots as well and playing good to start the game, and you only have a four-point lead, 32-28 to 28, coming out of that first quarter, that is huge for the Celtics, especially when you think about the fact that, yes, Tatum did hit a three early, but he missed a couple of really bad ones to start off the game. He missed his first two free-throw attempts as well. So you you just look at it as, okay, this is a bad start for Tatum. This is a great start for Golden State there at home. And what are we going to do to be able to come back and get into this game? Well, it took a lot of big effort plays, especially by Jalen Brown, when he had that huge effort sequence, first running down and blocking Wiggins and then getting back on the floor and dunking on uh, Iudala, I believe it was, who unfortunately took a shot to the groin from Jalen Brown's knee at that point as well. But he was okay. But, you know, not a great quarter for the Celtics defensively. And they still end up only down four coming out of the four uh, out of the first quarter. You got to be happy with that, right? You got to be happy that you weathered the blow, the blows that were Steph Curry just raining threes and looking like he was going to go into an absolute monster performance for the remainder of the game. And he did have a good performance, 34 points in the game, but it ended up being on 25 shots, seven of 14 from three. Like I said, he hit all of those three pointers in the first quarter, and then didn't score at all in the second quarter comes out of the second half and is hot in that third quarter, but they didn't do anything in the fourth either. So, I, I, it was it was a tough start for Celtics fans. It was a tough start to the series uh, right out the gate. And I gotta say, when I'm attributing it, it, attributing this to anything, I know this is one of the only things that was talked about at nauseum last night. It was brought up as graphics left and right by the TV broadcast. The Warriors are obviously more experienced going into this kind of a situation. The Warriors have played in finals games. They have multiple players on the team. I believe it was 123 games played in the finals compared to zero for the Celtics. And they kept showing that over and over. They showed past series where that was kind of the case, all that kind of stuff. And I got to give a little bit of credit to that. Or, uh, you know, I got to say that it's a little bit to do with that to start off the game. But you only get a little bit in the beginning of the game to start off that way. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the game with my fiance, and she's talking about no excuses. There's no excuses for this team. They should be showing up no matter what. You've been here before. You've gotten into big games. Well, they haven't been in these big games specifically, but I get what you're saying. Right? This team should be able to understand the moment. They came out a little flat. They came out slipping on the floor. They're making bad defensive plays. They're airballing shots. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And yet they still came out only down 32 to 28. That's pretty huge. That's pretty huge. But obviously, you get into this type of a moment, it gets really big. You get, you know, down on yourself. I'm going to give you a little bit of a break for the beginning of the game, but then you have to turn it up from there, and that's exactly what the Celtics did, and that's exactly what I'm going to continue talking about when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL.
2: The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp.
0: For the lead. Boston up by three. Al Horford in his first NBA final. They turn it over out of the timeout, and Al Horford with another three ball, his second consecutive one in the lead, up to six for Boston. Horford feeling it. A couple of consecutive threes in a mid-range. Brown inside. Horford with the offensive rebound. Wide open, smart. Cash! And the Celtics have stormed
1: ahead. Storming ahead at the end of the game. Nothing could feel better than that. Nothing nothing could feel better than that run that was ignited by Derek White hitting that three, that bailout three, where he had to shove off Curry with his shoulder and then take kind of a step-back three with two seconds left on the shot clock and hits it. Derek White playing out of his shoes, just like he did in Game 6 of last series. Love seeing that from the new father, that new dad's strength. Keep it going, Derek White, but also Al Horford, the veteran, the old man. Man, the guy that we all have to rely on throughout this playoff series, multiple times over and over again, starts off his first ever finals campaign with a massive performance. Massive from the guy. 26 points on 12 shots. He went nine of 12 from the field and hit six of his eight threes. Six of his eight threes. Are you kidding me? He hit more threes than anybody else on the Celtics besides Derek White. You got 11 threes out of Derek White and Al Horford in that game. Amazing performance by both of those guys. They were on fire. It was on the road. You didn't expect it, but you got it very happy for both of those guys and obviously you got Jalen Brown doing his thing as well he was a part of the igniting factor for this team especially late in the game he was the one kind of keeping us in it throughout the game as well I mean you go into that second quarter especially and he was one of the ones that was a catalyst for helping spark a 10-0 run to keep the Celtics in the game early which was big because you don't let that game get out of hand you get back you win game um, quarter two twenty-eight to twenty-two and you're back in this situation where you you have control of this game at the end of the first half. You're up 56 to 54 after how good Curry was in that first quarter. After how good the Warriors looked To start off this game with Wiggins actually hitting, and man, that is a huge hit for this Warriors squad overall, I would say, because he was able to reinvigorate his entire career from going from a busted number one overall pick to now being a crucial part in this Warriors playoff run and possibly in this final series. We'll see how he goes, because I think that he is going to be a major factor, especially you saw in this game, he didn't shoot the ball from three well, but had 20 points and five rebounds for a team that needed it in this one. So the Celtics, great job. You you come back in that second quarter. You make the big run in the fourth quarter as well. Second quarter and fourth quarter, those were our quarters. First quarter and third quarter, not so great. And we got to look into that. But it's you know, it's something that it keeps frustrating me that they keep coming out flat out of these half times. I don't know what it is. I really don't. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, you need a player to step up and give you a halftime speech that's actually going to have you come out riled up and ready to go. Or if it needs to come from Ime Odoka, it should come from Imei Odoka, but I don't really trust him to be able to do anything. I guess everybody keeps talking about how he's saying the right things. He's a great coach. It was all because he came from uh, Popovich, and now he knows how to make a team correct and all that. I don't believe in any of that. I-, I honestly don't. I think it's that the fact that the team actually woke up and started playing the roles that they should play, and if you do that for any coach, you're going to be great. But that's my whole argument on coaches. We can get into that again at another time. It was just a great overall performance from a team that got down in situations and just kept battling back. That's what this Celtics team does. They battle back, and they were able to have great performances from their role players when their superstar was not showing up. Because he, he didn't show up offensively. Let's just be honest about that. No matter what you want to say, he didn't end up showing up offensively. I thought that maybe the slow start was going to change in the second half. It didn't. Obviously, he was great from an assisting standpoint. 13 assists in the game. So you got to figure out things that you can do if you're not hitting. And he, to have 13 assists and only two turnovers in 41 minutes played for Jason Tatum, great job by him figuring out another way to be able to help the team. So I was happy about that. I was, I was livid at the fact that Daniel Tice even touched the floor in this game, by the way. I, in that second quarter, I think that he, he blew his chances for playing. He only played five minutes in the entire game and so I can't really harp on him too much, but man, does that dude stink. He doesn't even try to box out a guy like Draymond Green who's able to go two-on-one against, yes, it was Tice and Pritchard, so you don't really think that you're going to have the advantage there, but man, Tice, wake up, or just don't even get played. I I don't even know why he was out there at any time in this game. Keep it with Rob and Al Horford, and if you need a third big, it's Grant Williams. Other than that one corner three that he was lucky to hit, Daniel Tice gave you nothing. But there's more things that I want to talk about. There's more complaining that I have to do. So we're going to end up doing a little bit more of that. We're going to talk about the third quarter collapse that this Celtics team had and how they were able to rebound from that and what they were able to do going forward. We come back after this on 90.7 WKKL.
2: The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp. Did it just come down to the threes that they hit? in the fourth quarter, or do you think that rhythm was a factor?
3: No, I think, um, you know, they stayed within striking distance, and, you know, they made shots late. So, you know, we'll be fine. We'll figure out the ways we can stop them from getting those threes and, uh, and take them away. But, no, I don't think it was a rhythm thing. Pretty much dominated the game for the first 41,
0: 42 minutes. So... Be fine. Yeah, several of Al Horford's threes were, were wide open. I mean, do, what do you guys need to do better there?
3: I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll figure it out. Uh, watch some film. But, you know, they have guys that put pressure on the rim. So you're going to have to rotate and help. And we'll have to figure out where our next rotation is coming from. They hit 21 threes, and Marcus Smart, Al Horford, and Derek White combined for 15 of them. Those guys are good shooters, but. 8, 7, and 8. 8, 7, and 8. Yeah, that's 23, right? Yeah. 15 for 23 from those guys. Eh, you know, so. be fine.
1: Well, you knew Draymond Green was going to be confident no matter what. I mean, it's only one game, and you have no reason to shake your confidence, especially when you're the vocal leader of that Warriors team, that's for sure, and he's not wrong. I mean, you're not probably going to see another performance where all three of Al Horford, Marcus Smart, and Derek White are all hitting their shots the way that they were in this game. Once again, like he said, you had Al Horford going six for eight, you had Marcus Smart four for seven, and you had Derek White. Five of eight. So great performance from all three of those guys being able to, especially late in the game, take over from an offensive standpoint when you weren't getting it from Tatum and you were only you were getting some from Brown, but not enough. That was a huge momentum changer. And he's right. He's right. He's not going to see a similar performance to that again. But I don't know. I mean, the you got to give the confidence level, right? You can't you can't waver after game one. But man, I, I don't know. Leave it to Draymond to give that little sound clip of Yeah, we don't expect them to do the same thing in the future. And I'm sure that Marcus Smart will take that to heart, and then he'll shoot a million threes in game two, and that'll be one of the reasons that we lose. But whatever, we'll get into that in a little bit. It was a great game or a great end to the game for the Celtics, but it was by in no means a good third quarter once again for this Celtics squad. And I was already complaining a little bit about this in the last segment, but you got to go back to the fact that this team keeps coming out of third quarters and it's a complete roll of the dice wild card situation where you don't know what you're going to get. Yes, they have had some performances in third quarters throughout this playoff run where they showed up or they did enough or they tied it. And that was great. And, and you thought of that as a win for the Celtics team, but there have been too many times where they have come out and laid absolute eggs in the third quarter. Now, this one, at least they were able to get a little bit of scoring in there, got up to 24 points, but they gave, still gave up 38 to the Warriors coming out of halftime. The Warriors were hot. They went on a run. All of a sudden, you're down, and you're looking at it like, is this team going to just let this completely evaporate? Tatum's not hitting. They went on a, a an 8-0 run early, stretching a lead to 11. They got it up to, I believe, 14 points at times in this game after you would battle back and and try and get back every single time it seemed like you actually did something. They would come down and, and and just hit another big shot. I know that we got down to a point where it felt like we were finally playing some good defense. You get down there. And you have Tatum miss a shot, but then he steals the pass back right away and gets the assist to Brown, bringing it down to 13 points. Then you have Curry missing, and White has a nice take to the hoop, hitting both of his free throws, so you get it down to 11 points. And all of a sudden, Iguodala comes down and shoots a big three right over Rob Williams, and it's back up to 14. Right. So it would have been 14 if it wasn't for Derek White running immediately down the floor and getting fouled with 1.6 seconds and hitting both of those free throws at the end of the third quarter. If you don't have that sequence, if you don't have extra energy from Derek White, it's a 14 point lead going into the fourth quarter. And obviously, they would have won either way if it was a 14 point or a 12 point lead going in. But you got to keep chipping away. And I was big happy when it came to Derek White in this game. Once again, just because I am a Derek White fan, I thought that this that was the catalyst to them changing their entire season at the trade deadline. You got rid of some dead weight with a locker room cancer like Schroeder and a guy like Jason Richardson uh, or Josh Richardson who... You know, I thought he was good shooting the three, but maybe didn't fit with the dynamic with what the team was looking to get. And we were able to then bring in guys like Grant Williams, who was able to get more of a role with this team. And that has made this team a lot better. Now, I don't I don't think I, I already complained about Tice in the last segment. I don't think bringing in Tice was anything good, but I guess getting rid of Enos Cantor was fine. You're going to get more out of Tice than Cantor, That's for sure. I'll admit that. But I still don't want uh, Tice out on the floor whatsoever. It was just a, a, a tough look in the third quarter to see them get down like that once again, coming out of a halftime and not having the, you know, I don't know, the, the wherewithal or the, or the 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 butts on fire. You didn't have any, you know, thoughts of the moment being you had to step up in this third quarter. You kind of just let it go. You let your foot off the gas from that second quarter where you came back and you were on a little bit of a run, and then all of a sudden we're in the third quarter getting down once again. So, yes, they were able to come back in the fourth, and it was a miracle fourth quarter comeback where they were just hitting basically everything, and the defense was on point. It's a heck of a lot easier to play defense when your shots are going in as well. That's for sure. But also it it works both ways. Getting defensive stops leads to fast breaks, and this team is much better when they can get out on the fast break. Most teams are. Most teams are, to be honest. So I, you know, it was an amazing fourth quarter, but like Draymond Green said. I don't think you're going to see another performance like this, at least from those three guys. Now, you could get it from Jason Tatum, obviously, coming back and and going nuts in the next game, game two. Or you get Jalen Brown having an an absolutely bananas game, though he still did have a very solid game overall, I would say. Not the best shooting night, once again, for your two-stop superstars, but... I want to talk about that. I want to talk about going into game two and what this team needs to do to continue their winning ways when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL.
2: The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp.
0: Do you like enjoy a particular defensive coverage more than another? Uh, what's it like for you when you guys are switching those matchups? Uh, and, and why do you
1: think
3: it works so well on the court?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, it's been fun um, ever since I've been here. Just... All the defenses and coverage that we do, um, the way we can mix and match and um, make changes throughout the game, and uh, just having everybody out there that can, can guard multiple positions. So um, it's a lot of fun. and. Um, that's what we hold our hat
1: on. Defense, defense, defense wins championships, and that's what they're holding their hat on or hanging their hat on, Derek White. Great job by him. I, I mean, all over my notes is just Derek White this, Derek White that. Derek White hits a crazy three-point shot to tie up the game. Uh, Derek White makes a crazy defensive play to stop their their them from starting up a run of their own. All these things from Derek White, and he's right. This team, one of the best things that they do is they're able to switch and they're able to move on to different defensive situations with ease. And that's something that I think the Warriors squad has not seen throughout the playoffs as much when they've been facing off against their other opponents throughout the entire time with the Mavericks and the Grizzlies. Teams where, well, at least for the Grizzlies, I know that they're a pretty good defensive team, but they were banged up you had a Mavericks team that wasn't switching as good though they were able to you know hang in it with Luka Doncic at times this team this Celtics squad is built on defense this squad is that was the main thing that turned the whole entire season around other than just changing up the pieces on the team shortening the bench going out and getting the Derek White uh, trade and things like that getting rid of some of the other pieces which I already talked about in the last segment the major part of it was you finally bought in and everyone started playing defense I would also say that Marcus Smart's mindset completely changed and it ended up winning him a defensive player of the year because yes he was still playing good defense before that January uh, you know, midseason or, or the trade deadline or any of that stuff. He was still playing his Marcus Smart defense, but he was also just jacking up shots left and right. He was going crazy thinking he was still one of the offensive, main offensive weapons for this team, which is not the case. We all know that. We all know that Marcus Smart is best left to playing great defense, hustling, and then when he is shooting his shots, when he's getting his open threes, and that's great, you add that on into the mix. But he is a point guard first, a defensive point guard first, in my opinion, a guy that is supposed to spark it, the heart and soul, quote unquote, of the team is supposed to spark it with good defensive plays, taking charges, diving for loose balls doing all of that kind of stuff to get the team hyped up it's not about him coming down and getting his own shot going one-on-one doing whatever he needs to do to get himself uh, scoring opportunities that is not what we need out of Marcus Smart so I'm happy to see that this team changed it around from a defensive side I've talked about it all year that's what the mentality was it was like Marcus Smart woke up one day and was like you know what This is what I need to do. I need to go out there and just be the defensive leader on this team. And yes, I can still be vocal. And yes, I can still shoot shots, but I need to focus on the defensive side, bring down the shooting, and that will be better. I also think that the wake up, the the snap awake, all of a sudden came right around the time when there was the most... Uh, rumors about Marcus Smart getting traded around the trade deadline. All of a sudden, he became perfect for the role that he was. But luckily, he stayed in it because at the time, one of the things that I was worried about was, okay, once we get past the trade deadline, is Marcus Smart just going to go back to trying to jack up a bunch of threes again? Which he didn't. So that was good. That was a good thing for this team. To have that, uh, and and it led to where we are right now, with a big fourth-quarter defensive stops all over the place, and you were able to shoot as well. You were able to get offense because of that as well, right? So I can't go over it enough. It was a great performance by the team playing defensively, and I'm happy to be able to see them up one nothing. But now my thoughts go to... In the future, with this series, what is this Celtics team going to do? I told you guys before in the last episode, I think this series is going six or seven. I have not changed my opinion. Anyone out there who saw Game 1 and thinks now that the Celtics are going to go sweep them or gentlemen sweep them is crazy to me. I, you, if you don't think that the Warriors are going to respond in this series, you're crazy to me. And I also think that we need to get ready for the classic, all right, we did our job, stealing Game 1, letdown game on Sunday. That's what I'm fully expecting right now. I'm going into game two on Sunday expecting them to have more of a letdown game. I would still expect also Jason Tatum to wake up and him to get a lot of points. Now I emphasize points because it means that he could still have a bad night shooting overall, but go for 35. He could have 35 points on 26 shots or something like that, where he, you know, he doesn't have a good three-point percentage, but he shoots a ton of them or something like that. I would fully expect that because that's the way this team has gone. That's the way this playoff run has gone. They are not, other than the net series, other than that first series, which you know now, at this point, as much as I was on the Nets in that, going into that series, you know now that that team was just not going to play any defense. They were not going to punch back. If they couldn't just hit you completely with three-point shot barrages only, they weren't going to show up. But then you play the Bucks and then you play the, the Miami Heat, who are both going to p- punch back in that series, and they did so time and time again. And you saw moments where the Celtics, it felt like they just didn't show up for a game, or they just didn't show up for a half, or they just didn't put in a full effort for 48 minutes. It it happened time and time again. So, yes, I fully expect this team to come out flat in game two, riding on the fact that they had already done enough in game one. And I'm not going to tell you that the entire team's going to come out flat. I wouldn't be surprised if Tatum and Brown are still having a good game because there are two top players. But I am not expecting a lot out of the Al Horfords, Derek Whites, and Marcus Smarts going into game two because I think that they're already going to be you know, relaxed a little bit from how great they did in Game 1. That's just how I feel. That's how I feel. So I think you lose Game 2, you come back, you win Game 3, and then we'll see how Game 4 goes. But I'm expecting you lose Game 2, you win Game 3 and 4, you lose Game 5 back in the Warriors in Golden State, and then you win it at home in 6 in Boston. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm thinking will happen and we're going to see if that's how it goes. We're going to see how that, if that's how it goes. But I think Celtics in six is my official prediction at this point after seeing that. I would hate to be super confident that they're going to sweep at this point. You're going to be wrong. All right. I have one other NBA topic that I wanted to talk about real quickly before we get into some other things. We're going to do that when we come back after this on 90.7
3: WKKL.
2: The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp.
3: My brother the guy I love so much that I believe is the greatest player to have ever played. Michael Jordan is responsible as much as anybody for changing the game for the worse. Mm. When you consider you stay with me on this. Okay. This is throwing no shade on Michael Jordan. Of course, he's the greatest ever in my estimation. Number one. Mm -hmm. All right. But he was so phenomenal that the NBA marketed the individual The audience gravitated towards the individual, and the game became a bit more individualized because people wanted to be like
1: Mike. All right, I missed this a little bit before game one. Stephen A., I guess during the day yesterday, was talking about this question. And the actual question was, is Steph Curry responsible for changing the NBA in a bad way? basically talking about the fact that he always is shooting threes, and now everybody wants to shoot threes. And and then Stephen A. goes on to the fact that it's more about Mike D'Antoni and the way that he wanted to coach teams. He was the one who started the three-point revolution, which he's probably right. But Steph Curry made it a thing. Steph Curry made it so that every kid wanted to grow up to be the next Steph Curry. No one's done it the way that Steph did it. And that's why it's him that is the face of that question, not the coach, not the guy that came before him, especially not a coach. I'm just going to say that right now. Nobody's going to be thinking about it other than the actual NBA talking heads, that it actually came from the coach, Mike D'Antoni. It actually, to everybody else, to the casuals, to the guys that are just caring about the players, things like that. It was all about Steph Curry and him changing the game and the way things go. But then he goes into who actually he thinks changed the game for the worse, and that's Michael Jordan to him. Now, I get what he's saying, and I do agree. I do agree. Uh, that it was the fact that they wanted to make it all about Michael Jordan. He became the number one guy. He was the superstar of the league, the face of the entire franchise of the NBA. And all of a sudden it became everyone wanting to be like Mike. Like he said, that's where you came and got your Kobe Bryant from who wanted to be exactly like Michael Jordan and did a great job of basically, you know, becoming the same player in a lot of senses, his shots, his his mentality, all these kind of things. And then you have LeBron James coming in. He's the next iteration of that guy, that face of the league, the, the, the most individualized player out there. What is LeBron doing? That kind of thing. And I would love to be able to blame it all on LeBron. I honestly would. That would be, you know, the LeBron hate, hate, hate section or segment of this week's show, which I haven't done that in a little while. I would love to be able to blame it on LeBron, but I think that he's right. I think that Jordan was the one that started it all. Just like that way I say that it wasn't the Miami Heat that started the super teams era. It was the Boston Celtics with KG and then getting Ray Allen to go with Paul Pierce. That was the first super team. Just like I'm saying now that the first individualized superstar obviously was Michael Jordan. He goes also into, Stephen A does his in his rant about the fact that yes, he had Larry Bird and uh, Magic Johnson before that. That was the ne- last two guys before Jordan that were the faces of the NBA. But both of them were all about team basketball. It was all about passing. Magic Johnson was great for being an elite passer and getting his teammates involved. Larry Bird Same thing. Yes, he could shoot and do all of this other stuff, but their team was a juggernaut with players all over the place that were great on defense, on offense, on passing, all of that kind of stuff. It was a team sport. And then it became an individualized sport when Michael Jordan was touted as the number one guy, as he should have been, as he should have been because he became the greatest player of all time. And he still is to this day. All right, there's your LeBron hate. It's not LeBron James. It's certainly Michael Jordan. He started it. And like I said, as much as I would love to blame it all on LeBron for him being the individualistic a hole that I think he is, it all comes from Michael Jordan. Then it became Kobe Bryant, and then it is LeBron James, which congratulations to him. A little bit of extra stuff. I guess LeBron James is now a billionaire. so he got his he wanted to be one of the first athletes to be a billionaire while still playing. You got it. Congratulations, little hand for LeBron James there. We all uh, you know want to see him do so many good things, right? That's that's how we feel here on the clap trap. No, not not me personally, but uh, everyone listening, right? Uh, we all love LeBron James, don't we? No, no we don't. All right. Um yeah, I think that this this was an interesting conversation to have, though, and I do put that out there there to anybody listening along. Do you think that the NBA was changed for the worse when it came to LeBron James and his era of basketball, or do you think it goes back further to the Michael Jordan era? Because I would agree with Stephen A. Smith that it is actually that era that did it, or them you know, going in on the fact that it was him and making sure to let it be known that Michael Jordan is the number one guy. But we also had somebody else chime in on this because obviously, Mr. Twitter fingers Kevin Durant can't keep himself away from any type of online controversy. And so he had to put in his theory, which he said was My theory is that guys like Stephen A., Skip Bayless, and Shannon Sharp have changed the game for the worse. Players like Steph and Michael can only push the game forward. So what he's saying is. The only reason that everyone is clamoring for that number one superstar is because all the talking heads are talking about it all the time. Those are the guys that actually ruin the game in a sense, but I think you're way too late on that, Kevin, unfortunately. You know, I think that, like I said, I keep saying it over and over again, but Stephen A. was right. It was Michael Jordan that started it, and it wasn't because of the way that Michael Jordan was. He wasn't out there making sure that, you know, he was in the spotlight at all times because there was no social media back then. Sure, he was doing it as much as he could, but you couldn't really get to that level of, you know, LeBron James or anything like that with a social media presence. So... It was about Jordan, by the way that the league advertised that it was all about Jordan, and that's that's the actual answer to the question. I want to know what other people think about it, though, so I'm putting it out there into the world so that more people can think about it and and possibly reach out, and we'll have a good discussion about it. All right, we got to move on to something other than the NBA. I know I've, I've been just going all about the Celtics, and now we had some other NBA topics here, but we got to move on to some other stuff. There's been some recent Bruins developments that I haven't talked about yet, so we're gonna do that when we come back after this on 90.7 wkkl
2: the clap trap with your host zach clap
0: comes across and makes the save on that controlled by servenka back into the slot great goes cross ice and david osternak
3: I mean, are you uh, coming back uh, to Boston of next year
1: What's up Krejci? You coming back to Boston next year? That's the little clip that you got from David Posternock's personal, I believe Instagram account or maybe it was a Snapchat story, whatever it was. It was his own, it was of his own volition that he went up to Kraichi, post the tournament that the guys were playing in together as you saw them doing great work for that Czechs team, and they were able to, you know, score a ton of goals, it seemed, all the highlights that I kept seeing of Krejci to Postonok, Postonok to Krejci, all that kind of stuff, back and forth, I love to see the chemistry, but the big question is, exactly what Postonok asked, what's up, Krejci, are you coming back to Boston next year? And Krejci, you you pan the camera to him, if you haven't seen it yet, Go look it up on uh, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's everywhere on social media. I haven't gotten to it. It was a week or so ago that it happened. But you had Posternak asking Krejci straight up. you coming back to Boston. He pans the camera over to him, and he has this little smirk on his face. Doesn't say anything, but he has that little smirk on his face. Does a little bit of a, like head, I don't know, like a maybe or something like that. And all of a sudden you got all the Bruins fans thinking, are we going to get a reunion of Krejci and Pasternak again next year, but in the black and gold? Is that what we're going to get? Are we going to get Krejci back with the with the Bruins, the B on his chest, trying to pass to and give him another crazy season of, of goals and, and assists and everything like that? I hope so. I hope we've gotten to that point. I know that I had said that at the beginning of the season for the Bruins. Is there any chance that he comes back at some point after he's done playing for the Czechs or whatever he is going to be doing? But it didn't work out. And I think that they could have used him for sure uh, in that playoff series against the Carolina Hurricanes, one where they basically just got stomped out at times uh, against a team that was much better, but not having a second center that you can rely on. Yes, I liked what Eric Holla was able to do at certain points during the year and of course I liked what that second line with Hall, Pastronek and Halla all all when it was hitting, it was hitting and you felt confident that the team had depth at that second line. It turned out they didn't. Turned out they didn't going into the playoffs and I think Krejci could have been a huge factor if you had had him bolstering that second line where it was Krejci, Pasternak, and Hall, and then you could move Halla down a line and played on that third line, specialist-style line. Now you're having even more and more depth for this team overall. So for a Bruins squad that has a chance to, you know, obviously lose out on um, Bergeron if he decides to retire – if Krejci was to give a little bit of a notion, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hey, I'll come back for one more ride, let's do it all again kind of thing, which I hope is the case, then maybe that'll make Bergeron want to come back too. But the only problem now that I'm seeing that could put a little bit of a damper on that whole situation is the bad news that has come out for the uh, Bruins recently, and that is the fact that Marchand had to get surgery. He is now going to be miss at least six months I believe, and that's going to take him into the beginning of the season of next year, so you're going to start off the year without Brad Marchand, one of your most skilled or, you know, he's top two skilled players on your team. It's him and Pasternak, basically, offensively, skilled-wise, the elite talents from an offensive standpoint on this squad, and you're going to start off the season without him. Now, I'm not saying that he won't be able to come back and be able to be a huge boost to the team once he does get back, and obviously he missed time during the year last year, and the team was able to manage without him as much as they could, and bringing back a Krejci type of player would help with that. But this team's also obviously going to do, have to do a lot more than just that. You've shored up your number one defensive pairing in McAvoy and Lindholm. You have what I, it seems to be the goaltending of the future in Omar and Swayman. And you hope that Swayman can take another leap forward and have it just be legitimately his job going forward. Because, you know, in my opinion, Omar outplayed him this year overall. But now you have that you have a chance to, if you can bring Bergeron back and you still have Pasternak and Marchand off the injury, then you bring in, you know, Krejci, and and all of a sudden these pieces start coming together, and you might be able to have something. Obviously, you're going to have to go out there and keep getting more help for the defense. You keep getting more help for the bottom six forward lines and see what you can do with that. You need to get more depth overall, but hey, I don't know. I'm excited about it. I like to hear the thoughts of Krejci and Pasternak happening again. They looked completely fine. I know it's to lesser competition when you go and play in those tournaments and things like that overseas. It's not the same thing as you know high-tier NHL competition. It's not like what you'd be facing off with. That's now in the playoffs still at this point, where you have teams like the Rangers who are somehow beating the Lightning, a Lightning team that is just a dominant force for the past couple of years. And then on the other side, you have the Avalanche and the Oilers scoring eight to six games or whatever it was that ridiculous side of things where you have some of the best young talent going in the NHL in that series with McKinnon and uh, McDavid, those guys, the mix, the Mick brothers, basically, <laughs> no, but they're doing great over there. So that is an intense series as well. You got to get that up to that level. If you want to compete with these kind of guys, if you want to pe- compete even with the Carolina hurricanes of the world, And you're going to have to start it off by bringing back possibly Krejci, but also bolstering the rest of the team with trades and hopefully draft picks and whatever they can do with that. Obviously, it's going to be Sweeney who's going to be manning the ship. So we'll see what he's going to be able to do with it. But I thought I'd talk about the Pasternak situation with Krejci a little bit because it was interesting. It was intriguing. It's some Boston Bruins offseason talk, and I like being able to do that. All right. We're going to wrap up the show next with some Red Sox conversations when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL.
2: The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. From Whitlock. In the air, right field. And Cordero
0: toward the line makes the catch. Six innings of one-run ball from Garrett Whitlock. Good Senzel at second and two down. Schreiber deals. On the ground into the shift. Story slide. from his legs to end it and a socks win tonight 7-1 over Cincinnati
1: all right Garrett Whitlock I guess making me eat my words as he goes for a second six inning performance back-to-back six inning performances for Garrett Whitlock where he's able to do enough I would say to kind of warrant continuing this starting pitching role I guess I don't know I still hate it I still absolutely am not on board with them trying to force Garrett Whitlock to be a starting pitcher instead of a reliever. But if he can eventually turn into a guy who can give you six consistent innings and do that against good teams, too, which he hasn't done that against yet, I just want to remind everyone of. uh, that. That's going to be huge for this team going forward because they refuse, it seems, to go after any starting pitching. They have no starting pitching prospects. What are they supposed to do in the future, Bloom? I don't know until you get somebody you have him able to do something and it was against the Cincinnati Reds and yes last week I was telling you or even on uh Wednesday I was telling you that the Cincinnati Reds were uh, a bad team and I still think that they are a bad team but I guess you could look at their recent record I think they're 15 and 11 in their last, you know, 26 games so technically over 500 they've gotten a lot better after starting off something like 3 and 22 to start off the season so I guess if you want to tell me that the Reds have gotten a little bit better fine I still don't believe it but fine. So you have Whitlock going six innings against the Baltimore Orioles, and then you have Whitlock going six innings against the Cincinnati Reds. So, you know, good job, I guess, uh, uh, going the, the extra innings. And I'm glad to see that you were able to do something like that. But I I, I don't know. It's it's. Still not my favorite thing about the Red Sox. It's still, I guess, the, the one thing that I want to complain about the most. I mean, you had the game, and then on top of it, the fact that they weren't able to close out the month of May, and I already complained about that earlier in the week, but mo- not able to close out the month of May against bad teams and get to that 500 record. Instead, you lose three out, of two, three out of five to the Baltimore Orioles, and then you lose the first one to the Cincinnati Reds, and you're able to get back. Now, you start off June with some really tough series. You're going you're going to the Athletics for this next three-game series that starts tonight. You got three games against them. Then you got a four-game set on the road against the Angels, a good team, before you go to another three-game set against the Mariners. So you've got three back-to-back-to-back back to back to back series now that are going to be tough for this Red Sox squad to see what they're able to do. And, yes, the bats have still been going strong. I mean, you just had seven runs against the, the, the Reds. But before that, you combined – uh, you combined to score a total of one run over the last two games between the Orioles and the Reds. So they did go a little bit quiet there. I don't know. Uh, this team is still just a conund- like a conundrum to me that I have no idea how to get it going. I-, I have no idea what they need to be able to do other than going out and getting new talent. To me, uh, that seems to be the case. I do f- think that this team, a part of the reason why the bats have started to wake up is because they are being a little more selective with their pitches a little bit more recently. They haven't been as crazy with the swing at literally everything, which we were talking about earlier in the season, where they were th- swinging at something like 38 percent of pitches that were outside of the zone they were still swinging at them regardless so i think that they've started to come back on that a little bit which has been good it's been interesting to see guys like jackie bradley start to wake up and i guess bobby Dahlback to that extent a little bit has started to wake up from an offensive side of things so happy to see that but i i, I don't know i I don't know if there's a, a real switch that can be flipped on this team i don't think that they can necessarily play up to the competition that they're going to have to to be able to make a playoff run or to be able to make something out of this season overall unless you go out there and you get something at the trade deadline. I'm going to keep harping on it. I know Red Sox fans you are probably going to be sick of me talking about it at this point unless you're on board with me. Then you 100% agree that they should go out there and do something because it would be great if Chris Sale can come back and give you anything, but what if he can't? What if he can't, and now you're stuck with trying to force Garrett Whitlock to continue to be a good starter for this team when you don't know what he's going to actually be going forward. You really don't. You got Nathan Avaldi, who has been uh, pretty good, I would say. He went great against the Baltimore Orioles, fine, and he was okay against the the uh, Mariners before that, but even before that, he has had some terrible performances in this in this season already, so I don't know. Between a a pitching staff that includes Nathan Evaldi, Garrett Whitlock, Michael Walker, Nick Pavetta, and Rich Hill... I don't have a ton of confidence whatsoever. I really just don't. I, I don't have any confidence in this team. And then you got a bunch of injuries in the bullpen that are holding you back from having the the bullpen that you should have. So now you got to rely on guys like Schrieber and and Deekman and Brazier to actually give you real meaningful innings uh, or Strom, I guess as well. Is that going to be enough in the bullpen? I don't think so. I don't think so. So we'll see how these next three series go. I was hoping that you would be able to end May on a high note against the Orioles and the Cincinnati Reds. It didn't really go out that way. And now you got to go in and battle against these tougher teams on the West Coast on a crazy West Coast road trip. Can you do it? Will you show up? I don't think so, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. That's going to do it for today's show. I just want to say thank you to everyone tuning in on 90.7 WKKL and 91.5 Sandwich. I really appreciate it. I will be back again next week. And look out for the new Four Seas Cape Cod Baseball League show that will be again on Monday from 12 to 2. Uh, talking all about the Cape Cod Baseball League. I'm going to have uh, John Garner on to, for the episode on Monday. He is the league broadcaster, the director of broadcasting it's going to be, it's a good interview that I did with him, so stay tuned for that one as well but this show will also be up as a podcast, wherever podcasts are found just search the Claptrap, if you missed any of the show if you missed me talking about the Celtics we had a lot to talk about with them obviously, and we're going to have a lot to continue talking about in the future, I also talked about some Bruins topics, if you're into that as well, and then finished off with the Red Sox, but now that's time to wrap up the show, we're going to see how Sunday goes for for the Celtics I can't wait to talk about it on Wednesday day of next week and i will keep you guys updated on everything like that so keep it right here on 90.7 wkkl for more of the capes classic alternative and i will see you next week have a good weekend later